Is it What's up? Yeah, yeah, Chris, Chris can hear all this. You want to tell Chris about our honking problem? Did you tell him why? Did you tell him why? Oh, so I don't, I don't know if I don't know if um you're you you've been hearing honks in the background. Some <laughs> asshole like across the street put up a big sign that says uh, "Honk, it's my birthday," and now like every car that's passing by, even like fire trucks and stuff like that, they're like honking. <laughs> so we've just been hearing like sporadic honks all day. This morning I like I was hearing a lot of honks and I thought like something was going on outside and then I was like you know what I bet it's one of those stupid signs that's like honk blah 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 blah. So I went out to invest. We went out to investigate, and it was just—it's just the stupidest sign ever. Yeah. Honk! It's my birthday. So, do you want to start with follow-up? What did you have to? Sure. Have to say yeah. about the last episode, or any comments on any comments that you received? We kind of just dove right in and started talking about a lot of the low-level nuts and bolts of our thoughts and ideas uh, in relation to the topic. So there wasn't really much of a high level kind of easing in. So for the folks out there that are listening to this podcast, which we hope we hope there are many who aren't as classically trained or aren't as familiar with this space, it may have been a bit more difficult to follow and keep up with on second listening. Yeah, I think that's definitely um, the, the place where, where I think there's the most actionable criticism is to just sort of get better at um, taking the audience along for the ride. Yeah, I mean, I, I think we're, we're both of the attitude that um, classical music may, may have become, especially in the last sort of century or so, it may have become quite rarefied. And um, the main advances are taking place sort of away from the public eye. Um, mm -hmm. But I don't think either of us really think that that's where classical music belongs. Right, exactly. So, um, yeah. So you were the one who came up with this idea, does film music count? Do you wanna do you wanna sort of tell me a little bit about about why you phrased the question in that way? Yeah, yeah, sure. Um, when I talk to everyday people, be it coworkers, friends, family, everything, usually it comes up that I'm you know pretty involved in classical music and stuff, and you know enjoy it a lot. And I always end up asking them, even though it's a question I disagree with <laughs> from a fundamental nature, but this is a topic for another show. <laughs> but the whole like name classical music and that nomenclature, I you know, is very problematic. The question usually ends up coming from from my mouth. Do you like classical music or do you listen to classical music? But very often the response I, I get to that question is, does film music count? <laughs> so what do you say to that? So what I say is Absolutely, absolutely counts. Um, and that very answer um, definitely irks some classical music aficionados the wrong way. <laughs> Do you want to and start of course, with that for a second? Yeah, just, just I mean, to get, so, just to get the uh, just let's air the grievances here. So let's let's um, let's put you in a three-way conversation with uh, you know yourself, the person who is who you're trying to gauge their interest in classical music, and someone mm -hmm. who's a you know very much the uh, stereotypical classical music snob. Yeah, and and you 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 say absolutely, film music counts. What is what exactly is the nature of the grief that you're getting from this snob person? It usually comes in the form of an eye roll. <laughs> um, <laughs> it, and they'll and they'll usually say, oh, you mean like John Williams or Hans Zimmer or Danny Elfman? I be and I'm like, yes, exactly them. <laughs> and so my like quick kind of response to that, um, my quick response to that eye roll is to challenge them to 
come up with any definition they can of classical music and then explain to me how and why film music doesn't fit into that. And they usually have a hard time. I think that's a good challenge. I mean, I, I certainly can't think of any, any reasonable response to that. Right, right. Um, have you heard any responses that even come close? No, no. I mean, usually, you know, you, you kind of go down the thought ladder, right? And, uh, you know, they're like, oh, well, it has to be music for the concert hall and such. I'm like, oh, so I guess we're calling the piano music of Chopin no longer classical music. You know, it's like, <laughs> right? Or or, uh, um, or they'll be like, oh, it has to be like um, art music. And so that's kind of a common one I hear, you know, art music. To them, I would kind of ask, oh, well, what's art music, right? And then, and, and that kind of keeps, keeps on going. But what's your kind of initial, initial take on that? I've always been confused by how anyone can make any sort of reasonable uh, distinction between the music of Wagner, say, and the music of John Williams. Mm-hmm. Um, that seems so, to me like a, a completely straight line between between the two of those between the two of those guys. Um, yeah. So yeah. I, I guess in, in some ways I'm, I'm not I'm not the best person to ask about this because I, I never understood the I never understood the the other side of that argument. Um, right. And I can think of I can think of several knocks that I would put on film music that don't have anything to do with its classification as you know classical music or not. But mm-hmm. all of those knocks, I would, I would, uh, I would, I would have those same problems with. I do have the same problems with, like most opera music. And in fact, I would, I mm. say, like, I think you know, most opera music is is a lot more annoying to me than than even the most <laughs> annoying film scores. Interesting. Um, so the, the the problem of like a you know, in a, obviously we're talking about badly written operas and badly written yeah. film scores here, but the problem right. of um, you know it being sort of majority wallpaper music. Hmm. That's you gotcha. know is, that's not that's not that's not a phenomenon unique to film. The opera analogy I think is a very fair one um, because back in you know the 1700s and such it kind of changed when symphonies were becoming you know a more standard medium in the early 1800s in the early Romantic era. But before that, I mean, you you kind of wrote music, be it symphonies, concertos, all that to prove yourself so you could write operas, right? <laughs> I mean, <laughs> operas were the, the highest form of, of musical composition in their eyes. And it was also one of the highest forms of entertainment and most popular forms of entertainment too, not just high culture. Um, Mozart's operas, I mean, Mozart, you know, really cared about his operas more than he cared about most of his other music. That's not to say he didn't write terrific other things, but his goal was to write opera. Yeah, and I mean, um, I think a lot of classical musicians, even ones who you know have great in- intentions and respect film music, I think even still don't pay enough attention to it. Um, most of the orchestral music written nowadays is written for the film screen. That's and, a really good point. And, and I'm not saying that's bad or good. I, I would almost say it doesn't really matter. That's just how it is. And uh, and heck, if you want to make money being a composer nowadays, you know, it's very hard to do that outside of the film space. I mean, there's certainly big names out there that don't exclusively write for film scores, but the f- inverse is kind of interesting where most big composers have written for film, even if they're not a film composer. <laughs> I mean, I, I wonder if, if I may put on sort of my most cynical hat. I wonder yeah. if there's a 
part of the classical music world that that loves to be apart and above the rest hmm. of the hmm. population. Sure. Um, and film music really is a um, it's the it's the sort of most vulgar form that we have, and, and I mean vulgar in the sort of in the Latinate sense, not not as in crass. But it's it's really it's really the place where I would say classical music has the most attention from the most people, mm. um, like quote unquote Absolutely. classical music, um, it, and um, it, it's a great it's a great place for people to be introduced into classical music, um, who are yeah. not who are not into it before, um, and and I think we'll probably end up talking about why why that is later. But, yeah. But uh, yeah, I, I wonder like at my at my most cynical moments, I wonder if some somehow. Um, the, the sort of derision of film music by a certain kind of classical musician is uh, is a little bit sort of um, wanting to protect the the above and apart space that classical music likes to have sometimes. If you had to pick like a a favorite film score or a film score that's close to your musical heart, you know, does any come to mind? And, and another thing that comes immediately to mind is is the film score for Grizzly Man. I haven't seen it yet. I haven't seen it yeah. yet. It's really good though. It is really good. It's a it's a it's a wonderful movie about about Timothy Treadwell. Uh it's a movie by Werner Herzog. Mm-hmm. Um and, and the the movie is actually mostly comprised of footage that Timothy Treadwell took. Um okay. of uh of his, his sort of summers spent uh hanging out with grizzly bears. Yeah. Um, yeah. in the wild in Alaska. Um and the soundtrack for that it's 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 it seems to be conceived in a really interesting way and and it sounds really it's just a really beautiful soundtrack as well it's pr- it's produced and and played by Richard Thompson and i think a few other musicians okay. um and i think basically the the entire process of of composing the music for this was um Werner Herzog screened the film for Richard Thompson and his band or whatever um and they just sort of improvised um hmm. Over the mu- o- over the movie, and um, that that became the soundtrack. Interesting. Um, and yeah, it's it's just it's it's, it's really wonderful, and uh, I really like the way that it was conceived as well. I, th- I think that's yeah. a, that's a you know it's it's a really imp- if nothing else it's a really impressive way to compose a film score. <laughs> well, what's funny is that's kind of the original way to compose a film score, in the sense you know like in the late eighteen hundreds, so yeah, like the eighteen nineties when the Lumiere brothers in Paris were creating the first motion pictures, because that's what they truly were back in the days. It was, you know, the first films were 10 minute long kind of moving pictures. And that's the whole conceptual idea behind them. Um, They would showcase them on like a, what we would now call like a small screen. And they'd have a picture frame like you'd find for a painting or, or a canvas. They'd have a picture frame around it and it'd be, just them recording like everyday life in Paris and, and such. So it kind of, you know, saying a motion picture is actually more accurate to what they were than movies. Anyway, yeah. Um, yeah so in, in, the, in those early days, they, um, it was a lot of, you know, piano salon music that was used to accompany them. So it was a lot of Chopin, Eric Satie as well. Um, when you get to kind of the Buster Keaton, like a lot of the Charlie Chaplin movies and the silent films um, before talkies and sound sound movies with dialogue were a thing when those were premiered and then performed across the across the United States the music uh, was always was almost always improvised at that time by the pianist sitting right underneath the film screen he would be 
looking up and watching the film and kind of, you know, the scary parts, he would kind of, you know, improvise scarier music, the happy parts, you know, he, he would play so. And so it's kind of funny that with this recent film you're talking about, Grizzly Man, uh, they kind of went <laughs> sort of back to that initial film score idea. And it's worth noting that silent films were never really silent. <laughs> Yeah, there was still there's still music, and I do think you can't study the history of film without studying the history of film and its and its music in tandem, because the two were kind of always in, intertwined, and that relationship between director and composer has always been um, at the heart of I think that medium. And I also enjoy challenging people to. I mean, we can all think of movies that have great music, but the movies are bad. <laughs> um, <laughs> Shots fired. I'll just I'll just say Hook, the Steven Spielberg movie with one of the greatest John Williams scores of the '90s. Deep uh, cut. Yeah, yeah. I mean, and I like to think they'd both laugh and agree with me. It just didn't turn out very well. Um, yeah. Uh, I mean, with Robin Williams skateboarding as Peter Pan. I mean, that's. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, but but the music is is fantastic and and uh, and and very great. Uh, but I think the inverse is not true. I challenge people to think of a great movie with a unmemorable score or a bad score or bad music. I yeah, I don't think it's possible just because um, I mean, music has the power to completely ruin an experience. Yeah, it's like bad yeah. bad music will bad music will make a lot of things really bad, a lot of things that are really good really bad really quickly. <laughs> yeah, it's it's funny if I ask someone yeah if I ask you like what your favorite movie is. Um, yeah, if, if I just ask you right now, what's your favorite movie of all time? I mean, I guess maybe 2001 Space Odyssey. Okay. Hum to me the music. Well, right? <laughs> you can, right? <laughs> That's yeah. the thing. Like, you know, or what's the melody of, of that? Yeah, right? And, of course, that's a classical score. But, yeah. But, uh, but, yeah, no, I mean, if you think of The Godfather or uh, Casablanca or any of those, yeah, it's like the... Music is so much a part of those films. Um, yeah. Uh, a little tangent on The Godfather. Um, Please. We, I, I went to this, uh, this place called The House on the Rock with Annalise um, a while ago. It's this, it's this really quirky place in, um, in Wisconsin. And uh, it's basically just this sort of uh, wealthy, crazy person who built a house with a bunch of curiosities inside it. Um, and one of the one of the things that he has is a bunch of music machines. And I found mm. it interesting that um, like and they're scattered throughout this this place. And um, these music machines, you know, they're playing things like Bolero, Nutcracker. Um, so like classical other standards. classical things, yeah. Um, but one of them, but one of the music machines was playing the theme from Godfather. Oh, interesting. So yeah. um, if nothing else, that's the sort of de facto inclusion of film music into the into the pantheon of um, Ravel and Tchaikovsky. The composer of The Godfather, Nino Rota, um, yeah, he, he did not get the Oscar for best score, and I don't think he was even allowed to be nominated. What? Because the, the Academy apparently accused him of recycling some music he had already used in a previous film. Okay. Which I've listened, I forget the specific film it was, uh, but I've listened to it and it's kind of a stretch. I don't know. Um, um, I kind of call BS. Uh, well, who did he, end up he, getting it that year? What was it? Was that 72? I, I, I forget, actually. Yeah. I, I forget. 
Um, I think that was 70. Yeah, I could be wrong. Because um, that, that may be a situation where we have to sort of follow the follow the trail of, of blood, of blood money. See, yeah, see. Right. <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah, right. Yeah, um, yeah, get this. There's actually family money in Hollywood. <laughs> <laughs> Breaking news, guys. Oh, and also one of the greatest trumpet solos of all time, the opening opening trumpet solo of The Godfather when the screen is completely black. Yeah, yeah. it's great stuff. And and Rota, for, for what it's worth, has a wonderful um, sonata for flute and harp. Oh, does he? Yeah. Oh, I did not know that. Yeah. But uh, anyway, it seems like we went from tangent to tangent here. Yeah. Um, <laughs> um, so so going back to go, let, let's. I want to go back to silent films a little bit. Yeah, let's do it. Um, do you do you want to talk to me about how you how you think of um, the role of music in silent films? Yeah, I mean, and and you know, sorry, like yeah, if you, if you want to talk to me about what you think is the the role of music in silent films. Um, and I'm interested in how you think that has changed, if it has changed, since, uh, you know, talkies came along. The role, uh, so in, in silent films, if you go back and watch any of them, the music is very, very, um, very intentional, I'd say, right? The term still used in the film industry for score composing is called Mickey Mousing. That's when the music mirrors or, like, follows something explicit on the screen. So, like when a boulder falls in a canyon, hits the ground, and there's like a crash symbol right when the boulder hits. I see. That's, that's even still to this day called Mickey Mousing in, in, in the film world. Interesting. I, um, I had no idea. Yeah, and it kind of originated some of the earlier, earlier um, originates back in some of the earlier Disney black and white films when when Mickey Mouse would raise his head and the, the reed record would go, <laughs> or something like that. <laughs> so, so... In silent film days, and if you look at a lot of the iconic silent films, like um, Metropolis by Fritz Long, uh, I believe that was 1927. I mean, that's one of the like original dystopian anythings, not to mention dystopian film. Uh, yeah, mm-hmm. I do think um, music's role in film back then, yeah, it was a lot more kind of intentional and a lot more, it was a lot more of a, had a job to do, right? It, it was to kind of keep the interests of the audience keep um uh like per, you know kind of provide like a backup to to the narrative structure because the only time you would actually hear words you know in quotes is when you know, they'd flash up a, a word card on the screen uh so uh music was almost necessary in the beginning of the film because it was it was just a pretty boring medium <laughs> in the early days of film I, I think too are particularly interesting because unlike today when the industry was pretty young there were many different ideas thoughts and uh and opinions for what this new art form should be and how it should develop uh hollywood was not always the center of the film industry you know um even as late as the 30s and parts of the 40s uh there were a few film, uh, few film capitals of the world. Um, you know, Paris was a was the first one. <laughs> uh, Hollywood in, in L.A. Uh, and of course, the reason Hollywood became, or one of the reasons, L.A. in Hollywood became, you know, a great place to make movies was because of the diversity of geographical landscape around Los Angeles. If you want snow, you could drive a few hours. If you want beach, you could drive. 30 minutes if you want desert go a few hours north if you you know if you want 
the city or in the city. So, so because of that, uh, I never thought about that, but now that you say that is strikingly obvious, we will put it in the show notes. There's a hilarious picture that was trending around Twitter. Um, it was a, I want to say it was an original MGM map. It was either MGM or Paramount, one, one of the big guys. It was a map of California and noted and highlighted were the places you go to find a certain type of geography. So there'd be a little section that says like Swiss Alps, one that says like <laughs> Caribbean beach, like down by Coronado or something. That's awesome. Yeah, pretty entertaining. Um, but yeah, so when the film when the film in- industry was was young, yeah, there were mul- multiple centers. I mean, London was a big film capital. That's where Hitchcock started. And it wasn't until David O. Selznick um, convinced Hitchcock to move to the United States and Los Angeles to make his movie Rebecca that Hitchcock made a film in the United States. Um, fun fact, that movie is mostly filmed in, in Big Sur, you know, a little bit south of San Francisco. So Interesting. Uh, Hitchcock did love to film in Northern California every chance that he could get. So. <laughs> and of course, Berlin was a, a film a film capital. And during the 20s, you know, Berlin had a really vibrant counterculture scene and everything, which, spoiler, that changed in the 30s. <laughs> um, and people like Herzog had a hell of a time trying to bring it back. Yeah, oh, oh, a big time. Yeah. And no, I mean, Berlin has come back as kind of a counterculture capital of Europe yeah. in the world. Yeah, so Fritz Long, who was the German film filmmaker and made a lot of modernist, you know, in quotes, <laughs> modernist films. Um, when, when you watch a lot of these earlier films, you can kind of see different ideas that directors and composers had for, for kind of the role that the music should be playing. Should the music kind of be able to stand alone and be performed as an orchestral concert? You know, perhaps uh, per, um, Sergei Prokofiev. Um, yeah, so like for his film, Alexander Nevsky, you know, that can be kind of performed as its own orchestral piece, you know, aside from, from being a film. But It often is, right? Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah, it very often is. Um, and But when you look at some of, you know, the other end of the spectrum is valid as well, where you know, a lot of those early silent films, it'd be just kind of comical and, and ridiculous to listen to the music without the film because it was just made just a slot right in and doesn't really work outside of, of that setting. Yeah, I mean, j- just like any other, any other art form, there, there's, a, there's a spectrum of, of, um, of things that are, you know, the, the result of, of pure workmanship and things that are the result of pure artistry and everything in between. Yeah. There, there, are, there are these sort of grand conceptions. And then there are also just, you know, we just needed four minutes of piano music here. <laughs> right. It's funny too. The first, so the first talkie movie, the first movie with spoken dialogue and the first non-silent film, I guess <laughs> is, is the way to put it, was was the jazz singer in, in 1927 as well. And uh, with the great music by uh, Irving Berlin and the great American composers and songwriters. I, I can't remember if he composed it for the film. I, he probably did. But yeah, Blue Skies is from that movie, one of the you know, iconic jazz standards. But it's funny, you go back and you watch that movie, it's not very good. <laughs> like, it, and it's just it's it's also kind of funny to um, you can see that most of the actors are, are almost kind of feel awkward acting in it. They like speak with very unnatural voices and things because the whole idea of recording your own voice was still a very new idea. Yeah, I mean, it's always interesting to see, um, like, the, the, it's it's interesting to see the 
what people think of the state of of the art from from that time period. Like mm. it's it's, mm. in, it's interesting to see like what people thought of films from the 30s and 40s. Like th there are a couple of essays that Arnold Schoenberg wrote on the state of film and film music, and he is completely scathing of the form. Oh, interesting. Um, he, he's scathing in his review of the form. Um, uh, you mean of the like of the film medium like yeah. as an idea? Yeah, simply because I think, um, I don't have the quote in front of me, but I, I'm, I think that he, he saw the possibility of film as the sort of direct continuation of the vision of, of Wagner and the sort mm. of like arch drama. And he, gotcha. and he sort of conceived of the possibilities of film and film music in that way. And okay. I think um, when he saw the kind of stuff that you were talking about, he must have been very, very dispirited. <laughs> but I think those, I think, I mean, like you said, it's not a very good film, but I think in in some ways it's, it's the sort of growing pains that, that any new industry and new art form has to go through. Um, yeah. And, you know, if Schoenberg had just stuck it out for a few more decades, I think, I, I can't imagine that, um, that he would really be skating in the same way of the state of modern film and modern music. I mean, so much good stuff has happened in the last 50 years. And we can't talk about the composer Arnold Schoenberg without saying my favorite fact about him, <laughs> which was, uh, he, I forget the name of the phobia, but he had that intense fear of the number 13. Triskaidekaphobia. There we go. There we go. Yeah. And uh, to the point, he would like avoid it in his music in all forms. Like I don't, he didn't write like a 13th piano sonata or he didn't write a 13th that or this or anything. He wouldn't ever like write the measure number 13. And of course, he ended up dying on Friday the 13th. So. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't know that. That's pretty good. I mean, it's kind of it's kind um, of uh, it's kind of funny that someone who who tinkered around with numbers as much as he did had mm -hmm. had, a, had this oh. sort of intense numerological fear. But um, I guess that's, that good goes point. hand in hand. Uh, you know, who, yeah. who, who was it that said that the genius is the byproduct of madness, not the other way around? <laughs> <laughs> Interesting, interesting. So back on, on the topic of, you know, film as the art form, you know, to start kind of high level. I, I do sincerely believe that the history of film and movies and that industry and that art form is really interesting and well worth kind of studying and going down that rabbit hole on the internet and just being intellectually curious about it. Mainly because, well, for a lot of reasons, but one of the big reasons is that it's such a new art form still um, you know, the Oscars are what, like 92 years old or something, but like film is a little over a hundred years old. So because of that, we have such great records and documentation and testimony from the people that were around when it was, you know, starting, right? We have the very first films. We have the very first silent films, the very first talkie films, uh, the first color films, we have such great records, unlike in most other art forms, like music, I mean, it's been around thousands of years, you know, visual painting, been around thousands of years, drama and acting, been around, you know, very, very long time. But film, I think, is pretty unique. That's still just a relatively a very new art form. And because of that, there's so much about how an art form is born, gets created, and grows. That's a really good point. Um, it, it really will, like, I... This has nothing to do with anything, but I do wonder if we'll if we'll be able to sort of reverse engineer any of the knowledge gained from studying the beginnings of film. Like I wonder mm. if we can, by like through the study of the beginning of film and the sort of growing pains that it 
is possibly still going through. And the sort of the, just the evolution of a genre that we have records from from the beginning of, like you said, I wonder if we'll be able to sort of gain any information from that that we can map onto the sort of gray areas of the beginning of music or drama mm. or something like that. One one of the things that's obvious when studying the early days of the film industry and film itself is yeah just how ununified it was. Um, so after film was really proven itself to be a big business. Uh, yeah, there were many different notions of thought for music's role in film. Some studios, some execs, some prolific directors believed composing original music for a film was crazy. <laughs> yeah, you know, it was expensive. You had to hire an orchestra. It was it was too much work. I mean, because yeah, creating a whole original score for a film, you know, especially back in those days before editing software and, and things, there were a lot of people in, in LA that believed film music to just kind of be this this toolbox and these like can pre-recorded snippets that that you just have for your studio and when you create a, a new film you pull out the sound effect for that and in this little 20 second musical clip for this as opposed to having an original piece of music for each film so i mean thank god we don't live in that world one of the early advocates for um you know having grand orchestral scores grand orchestral original music for each film was Max Steiner from that time. He wrote some of the big names. Uh, I mean, he wrote the music for King Kong back in the 30s. He wrote the music for uh, Gone with the Wind. So just a few small films. <laughs> yeah, may have heard of them. Do you want to talk about how how we even got to film music? Like, do you want to talk about the, the sort of thread running from, from Wagner to Korngold? Um, yeah, Prokofiev, whoever. Like, what? What's your? Yeah, I'll start kind of in the middle, actually. So I do, I, I do think um, a composer that kind of danced in both circles. Um, that being the orchestral concert world, and then the film score world uh, was yeah, Eric Korngold and Eric Wolfgang and Korn, Korngold. Eric Wolfgang Korngold. Yeah. Thank you. you Thank you very much. Can't a middle name as <laughs> illustrious as that one. <laughs> Um, yeah, and one of those composers where um, if I if I meet a classical orchestral musician that hasn't really you know dabbled in film music, I say, oh, check out Korngold's score to the Seahawk or to Robin Hood. And then the inverse is true too. Someone that knows his film scores a lot, I say, oh, go check out his violin concerto. Right? It can, he he kind of you know wrote wrote really great stuff in both worlds. And um, I learned recently he was also kind of like a genius. Yeah, I, I think the the fact is is lost on on the general population for some reason. But yeah, he was he was a straight up genius with, with a sort of Mozartian facility on the keyboard. Um, you know, there, there are stories that uh, you know when he was ten years old or something, he went to see um, Elektra, the opera by Richard Strauss. And then he went home and he was able to play through the entire thing from memory on the piano at the age of 10. You know, this is, this is ridiculous. Um, and later on, you know, th there, there's also some, some stories. I don't, I don't know what the, what the film was, but um, he, was able to, he was able to sort of um, check out a, a, like a, a roll of celluloid. And based on the length of of the celluloid, he was able to he was able to tell you instantly how many seconds of music needed to be composed for it. Um, really? So wow. yeah, he, he had he had this sort of Mozartian or Mendelssohnian kind of 
you know, genius that's just sort of bursting forth from <laughs> from inside him. And I, I don't know, I don't know why, um, I don't know how that music, uh, sorry, I don't know how that fact got lost because he was also, he was really popular in Vienna. Mm -hmm. Um, there was right, there was a point right. there was a point when his operas were being performed more than anyone else's, even Richard Strauss. Really, oh, and wow. somehow I don't know I don't know what happened there, but it could have been the anti-Semitism. I think that's partly, at least partly, what facilitated his uh, not facilitated. That's partly what necessitated his flight to uh, America. Yeah, his uh, flight to LAX. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> When Europe was kind of entering, you know, a dark time in, in the 30s, yeah, a lot of composers that were big in, in the European scene, a lot of Jewish composers ended up coming to Hollywood. A lot of the Jewish population did in general from Europe just because, you know, there's a new up-and-coming grand industry that was exploding in L.A. and they needed to leave Europe. Yeah, with, with, with Korngold's classical comp compositions, I think, um, just, just as a sort of little bit of follow-up from, from the last episode... I think um, Korngold's second piano sonata offers an interesting uh, counterpoint to to the um, the arrangement of Beethoven's Sixth Symphony on piano that we were talking about last time. Okay, okay, um, I'm curious. Where the symphony we we were talking about how um, Beethoven really wrote on the piano, and he wrote he wrote very like the. The things that matter is is really the, the skeletal structure of Beethoven, and yeah. a, a lot of times we find that in the orchestrations, um, it actually gets lost or muddled. Um, I find that sometimes with with Korngold, um, the opposite is true. So when you listen to something like his second piano sonata, um, it's it's written it's written as if it were it were a sort of pre-symphony. Um, it's, it's written in, in such a way that you can almost hear the score in his head as, as you're playing, oh, the, as you're hearing the piano sonata. There are these sort of redundancies that, that are actually really not pianistic at all. Um, like th there are these sort of redundant octaves that, that imply more the sort of um, like the brass supporting techniques that Wagner would use um, yeah. or um, the sort of like um, syncopations that you would sometimes see in the woodwind parts um, in Wagner operas. Um, just to sort of keep the line moving. It's it's writing that's actually that's uh, on the one hand it's very instrumental, but on the other hand it's it's really not pianistic at all because because it is redundant on the piano. Um, so it's it's really like a pre-symphony or pre-symphonic text um, in Korngold's hands. I'm gonna go listen to it and yeah, and we'll throw it up in the show notes. Yeah, yeah, of course. Um, uh, no, so a, a lot of the orchestral composers of Europe, you know, during the 30s, <laughs> were making the way to, um, to the United States and to Los Angeles, specifically for the film industry. Um, Franz Voxman is another example. Um, or I think after he moved to the US, he did ask that people call him Waxman <laughs> to, to, to sound less German, Jewish, European, all that. Um, but yeah, but Franz, Franz Voxman, you know, uh, a lot of violinists probably know that name from his Carmen Fantasy. But I highly suggest um, checking out his film music. He um, he, he did the music to uh, Hitchcock's Rebecca, which we mentioned earlier. Um, he also did Bride of Frankenstein and some and some other great work. So, yeah, I, I find that that transition period where there were people who were sort of playing both both worlds of um, you know straight off classical and film music. I find that time period completely fascinating. 
if you listen to a lot of the music of John Williams, I mean, you can hear Corn Gold like so loud and clear in that. You know, John Williams was, you know, clearly <laughs> inspired by by Corn Gold's music, the way he wrote, the way he orchestrated, the role you know music kind of had in the film. Um, a specific example would be uh, John Williams' probably most famous piece, which is the title sequence to Star Wars. <laughs> uh, you know, big title, the film scroll. Uh, yeah, if you listen to that and then go and listen to Corn um, Gold's Overture to the Seahawk, they're strikingly similar, not necessarily from a melodic perspective, but definitely in their structure. Um, Interesting. Both start with uh, you know a very trumpet-heavy brass fanfare, all that, um, and then they kind of transition to a more violin heavy passage where you have this lush string second melody in there and then it kind of transitions back to the brassy fanfare dun, dun, dun. and then of course you have the second section which is all violins strings then after that you go back to the main brass fanfare and then if you listen to the overture to the Seahawk, forget the year, but we'll link to it. Um, yeah, it's kind of the same structure. Brass fanfare followed by string counter melody or string second melody. And then back to that original brass fanfare. And also both movies are kind of about ships exploring new unexplored places. So there's a bit of a parallel in that regard as well. Yeah. Do you want to talk at all about the relationship between John Williams and um, Wagner? Oh, sure. Yeah. So, so yeah, it's clear. I mean, this is just the way, you know, art, art progresses, you know. So John Williams clearly was inspired um, uh, by, by Korngold. And Korngold, of course, was heavily influenced, inspired by Wagner. Um, and so Richard Wagner, the, the late 19th century German composer who... Um, I mean, he, he brought many innovations in classical music, light motifs in his grand operas. Uh, and that is just, you know, a musical passage, a quick musical idea that's associated with either a character or an emotion that reoccurs throughout the opera. Um, it's kind of standard in film music nowadays, just a very traditional way now to approach film music. But back when Wagner was, was composing his operas in, uh, in the late 1800s, yeah, that was kind of a new innovation that then found its way to film scores. It's, it's, it's really one of those things uh, that is so obvious now that it sounds downright stupid to, to even talk about it as an innovation. <laughs> also, you know, the, the performance nature of opera was really changing in the late 1800s. When you look at Wagner's innovation to uh, opera performances and operas themselves, you know, um, at the Beirut, Beirut Festspielhaus is, I think, the name of the opera house, but it's the, the opera house in Beirut, Germany. Um, Beirut or Bayreuth, I'm probably pronouncing it. Uh, I don't actually know. We should find that. Um, we should find that YouTube channel. Yeah, excuse whatever. Excuse my German for the duration of this <laughs> of this podcast. Um, it was a brand new, at the time, state of the art opera house that had a lot of aspects to it which we now assume is standard both in movie theaters but also in in opera houses and and such um and even concert halls um among the innovations 
among the innovations being having the lights dim after the performance has started. And that was possible with like the new oil light technology at the time. They could, you know, accurately dim the lights and kind of just how they wanted them. Um, again, that's like standard nowadays, right? In yeah. all performances of, of that kind. But back in the days, that was a brand new idea. Another innovation of that opera house was having the pit uh, lower and actually below the stage. So the orchestra, when you're seeing the performance, the orchestra is tucked away and almost out of sight. And so the prime prime visual focus of the experience is the stage and the production. Uh, one yeah. of the one one of the facts that the movie Amadeus does get correct is <laughs> is uh, when Mozart was performing and conducting his his opera premieres you see in that movie the orchestra pit is like on the same floor level and plane as the audience and in their seats that's how all opera houses were at that time um the orchestra was front and center and you could see that as well as you could see the everything that was going on on stage yeah that's one of the that's one of the very few things that amadeus gets right so you know <laughs> count it because uh, that's, that's not you're not going to get that too much one check for column B. We're not going to even bother counting column A. <laughs> um, yeah, and so early film composers took a lot of their inspiration and ideas from late German operas. So did the movie industry. And back in the days, too, like films would go on tour, right? If you talk to like any anyone that saw Casablanca, they would say, "Oh yeah, when Casablanca came to town." That's so interesting. Um, yeah, yeah, right. And so it was almost like this way a, a Broadway company or production would go on tour as well. Film as, as an art form and a concept, yeah, it was new, but it was kind of natural. It was going to happen. Yeah, to me, it seems, like you said, it's completely natural. And it, in some ways, maybe the, even the only way forward. I think opera hit a point, to me, that it just, it just got completely irrelevant and boring. I, I really do have some sympathies with uh, with the quote of the young Pierre Boulez, who said that the, the only way to fix opera is to burn down all the opera houses. Um, I see where he's coming from a little bit there. I, I, do, I do harbor some antipathy towards opera generally, and I think film is like the, is opera's savior. I think opera, hit a, ah, I think opera hit a point where it just, to me, I just don't see how it would be relevant in in the 20th century and going into the 21st. And just, right. just like what we were talking about um, earlier about how the recording industry might have to be the savior of the, of the concert hall, I, I genuinely think that film is the savior of opera. And, and whatever, whatever, film is a, is a sort of phoenix that's reborn from the ashes of, of, of like the, the fiery mess that opera was, became, was becoming. I think interesting. Um, interesting, and and for what it's worth, I I'd like to see opera going going. You know, new operas being written going forward. I wonder how much, like I wonder when the shift will happen when film, f from when you know, fil film is taking its its influence from opera. Um, I wonder if we'll ever start to see a shift where opera will be visibly taking its its uh, influence from film. Like when 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 will film become the real art form and offer the side note um, in the sort of historical conversation of the sort of dramatic art. Um, right. So, yeah, I mean, th that goes that goes hand in hand with what I was saying at the very beginning, that I never even understood um, people's antipathy towards film music because I don't even conceive of film as that much of a different 
thing. I, I conceive of film as like an elevation of opera. Like opera was the best we could do with the technology that we had, and then film came around, and and now like the world has opened up. Right, right. So, um, that's maybe a little bit of a crazy position to come from, but th that that's really that's really why I'm so so open about film music. I, I just don't. To me, it's not even like a jump was made. It was really that something was really just coming to an end, and and the and film technology came around and and really saved it. Yeah, and you know, opera was the was the film was the movie of of the 19th century, 18th century, you know, 17th century. And now it's like film is the opera of the 20th and 21st centuries. Yeah. And, and with, with, you know, so many more possibilities, obviously it doesn't even need to be said. Do you want to talk about different, like just real quick, any sort of broad methods of film score composition, uh, film score composition? Well, the, the, the things that I'm interested in uh, on that front are, are, just the the sequence of events like how like how different composers do do the order of uh do you get the script and then compose do you get the actual film and then compose and then and then do you actually compose something or improvise like with grizzly man um i remember philip glass somewhere is talking about um the way that he did um the scoring for kayana's Katsi and um and i think the film is called mishima um about about yukio mishima um, could be wrong on that, but um, I, th I think there, there he he in both of those films he he did he did something where um, the the directors like maybe sent him a rough cut and then and then he composed he composed like a long score for the rough cut and then the director actually cut the film to the music. Ah, oh, interesting. Um, and then and then they they tightened it they tightened it up on both ends after that. But it, w it was a situation where a lot more music than was needed was composed. And the actual, e even just the process of making the film was influenced by the score that Philip Glass had come up with. Um, so I'm interested in cases like that where it's, it's really a, a true um, collaboration where you know, a, rough cut, a rough cut is sent to, to Philip Glass and he sort of you know, riffs off of it, sends it back to the director and the director riffs off of that. And the end product I think is, I mean, with something like Kayana's Katsi, um, Obviously, the the music and the film are not separable, and right. it could it could be that 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 method is the only way to compose a film score like that. Right, right, yeah, interesting. I know, um, like the finale slash like last ten fifteen minutes of E.T. is was composed or cut like that. So John Williams like composed the music, and Spielberg loved it, especially that segment from like the bike race to the end credits. Um, Spielberg cut the film to John Williams' music. Yeah. So so that 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 is completely fascinating to me how like a, another another thing about composing for film is is that you have to sort of have you know five or six different methods of composition at your fingertips and you have to just sort of uh you know flip between them between um between what the what the film needs. So th mm -hmm. that that's also something that I'm really interested in. And yeah, of course I, I wish we had someone who actually knew what they were talking about around here, so we could yeah. we could ask them some real questions. So film composing, it's sort of the opposite of like traditional composing as we may think, right? It's a very collaborative process by nature, right? That collabor that collaboration, that collaboration between director and composer is pretty special, and 
can really yield some really great results. And I, I think of like the great, the great um, composer, great composer director collaborations, like we already said, John Williams and Steven Spielberg. Uh, I want to say the only Spielberg films that were not scored by John Williams, I'm probably gonna get this wrong, but I think it's just two. I think it's just The Color Purple, because um, there's already a score for it. <laughs> um, and Bridge of Spies, actually, I I want to say. Oh, interesting. Oh, the BFG may have not been done by the big friendly giant by Road Dahl. Um, the film for that may have not been John Williams either. I was gonna say. <laughs> None of these are, I, I I wouldn't consider any of these sort of mainstream Spielberg, so. But by and large, most of uh, Spielberg's films, yeah, he's yeah. always used I mean, John Williams as his collaborator. But yeah, so you have that collaboration. Of course, you have um, Hitchcock and Bernard Herrmann. So Bernard Herrmann, um, he did a score for Psycho, for uh, for Vertigo, a lot of the great Hitchcock films. I was going to say another, another example of a, a combination, uh, a collaboration, is between the Bengali filmmaker Sachajit Rai, um, who who made the Apu trilogy, and um, he he collaborated he collaborated with with Ravi Shankar for that score. Okay. A very young Ravi Shankar, I believe. Oh, wow. And I, I believe that was also composed in the sort of improvisatory way. Um, and Interesting. That's that's one of the if you haven't seen that if you haven't seen that trilogy, I think that's one of the great examples of completely lucid and um you know very emotive film composition done by Ravi Shankar so gotcha um yeah interesting yeah um just to throw out some non-Hollywood examples in there yeah sure I mean I guess going back to Hollywood um Tim Burton and Danny Elfman oh hell yeah 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 from Batman Edward Scissorhands uh uh Nightmare Before Christmas now uh Danny Elfman used to play in some weird band right Boingo Boingo. He he was a punk rocker. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> and also, I mean, Danny Elfman, I also, I mean, for all the true music nerds out there, he's one of the only composers that successfully written something iconic and and famous in the Lydian mode. <laughs> Interesting. And what is that? That being, that would be the Simpsons theme. I didn't even know he wrote that. Oh, yeah, yeah. So, yeah, that's a major scale except for a sharp fourth, right? Yep. So that's the Linnean mode for talking modal music. And it's such a weird sort of mode key. I mean, it's not a key. It's, it's a mode. Um, it's so weird to write for. It sounds so unnatural. But it works so well in The Simpsons. And it's, it's, it's incredible. And also, side note again, Danny Elfman <laughs> going I mean, back to our theme of, you know, you always come on the shoulders of those who came before you, um, Danny Elfman, when asked about the Simpsons theme, he flat out said in an interview, he took inspiration from the Jetsons theme. Of course. And interesting. Yeah. Interesting. And after you hear that, you're like, oh, yeah. Yeah, of course you did. <laughs> you still need to give me your favorite scores, really. Oh, that's true. Yeah. Yeah, yeah please, please. I want to hear this. And I have pen at the ready to write them down so I can refer back later. Yeah. So we did bring it up earlier. Um yeah, uh, yeah, we did bring it up earlier. I always loved um, Franz Voxman's score to Rebecca. It's phenomenal. And I also just adore that film. It might be my favorite Hitchcock movie. Uh, no, that's no, a stupid thing to say. Uh, but it's, it's up there. And yeah, it's also kind of funny. It's um, So it was made in 1940. So that was soon after Hitchcock moved to uh, California to, 
to start making his movies here instead of in London. So it was his first movie made in the United States, um, uh, 1940, yeah. And yeah, so the Franz Voxman score is just serenely beautiful. It's just so lush and, and gorgeous. Um, and it stands, stands fine on its own just as an orchestral piece that you do hear orchestras performing. I think there's a recording on Spotify slash Apple Music of the city of Prague Philharmonic performing the Rebecca Suite, I think I think they call it. Rebecca's interesting. Um, yeah, I was, and, and the, like the the main character is not present on the score. On the the main character is not present on the screen. Yeah, no. Um, and I would argue that that a secondary character is the music, and that's also not not tangible. Um, it's a really interesting concept. Rebecca, you know, was based off the Daphne du Maurier book. Okay. Um, by the same name, and also just on the film topic, I do think Rebecca is one of those great examples of a movie based off uh, a book that does it extraordinarily well and where the film actually i think becomes better yeah. than the book jurassic park i thrown in that category as well schindler's list too silence of the um, Lambs. yeah yeah exactly exactly the godfather yeah <laughs> um yeah it's funny we all myself included forget those are all books first <laughs> yeah uh, just because the films are so iconic yeah i mean film really obviates the need for literature that is not literary yeah if you're not going to write something where the actual uh text is being played around with in some way um a lot of times i think you're going to find that a well-made film is better the shining as well one of the just a really quick side story um one of the most hilarious um sort of director author interactions is that um stanley kubrick apparently one time called stephen king up in the middle of the night um (laughs) And said, uh, hey, I, you know, I'm just wondering, do you believe in God? And Stephen King said, yeah, I think so. And Stanley Kubrick just said, yeah, I could tell, and just hung up. <laughs> <laughs> and, and then he changed the film accordingly. The way I pitch Rebecca when I'm recommending it to someone to watch. Also, side note, I don't tell too many people because I don't want it to get taken down, but I'm pretty sure it's on YouTube for free right now. Yeah, <laughs> yeah so uh, the way I would always pitch Rebecca is uh, it's the greatest greatest ghost story ever told. So, yeah. Um, that's a good That's a good. Anyway, one, I believe, yeah. I don't want to spoil it, but you shall go watch it with uh, the fantastic uh, Laurence Olivier and Joan Fontaine playing the leads. Yeah. Back when movies were glamorous, too. <laughs> <laughs> the golden age. Um, and yeah, again, it's mostly filmed around in and around Big Sur, California. So That's awesome. Great stuff. Other film scores I've always loved. Um, the Godfather, again, to go back to that, just it's one of those you can't think of that movie without thinking of the music. Like the music is so like paramount to what that film means, meant, and like has become. Um, other film score? Yeah, no, there's. I really love them. Um, so it's interesting, Steven Spielberg. When you look at Steven Spielberg's movies, uh, you know, in the early 2000s, uh, he kind of took a step away, I feel, from the big glamorous blockbusters he'd made the few decades lean up to that. So, you know, Jaws, Raiders of the Lost Ark, um, uh, Jurassic Park, all these E.T., all these, you know, giant films. But in the early 2000s, he kind of took a shift away to more subtle ideas and plots and narratives. Um, so his films instead be- became, you know, the terminal, catch me if you can, 
Minority Report, Munich, and John Williams's music did the same to kind of accompany that. So some of my favorite scores are ones like Catch Me If You Can, where that's such a really awesome, that great is wonderful. score and music, but it's very different than what you in your head think of as a John Williams score, which is giant orchestra, heavy brass, you know, grand sweeping melodies. But instead, it's a, a bit, a bit more subtle, but just as effective and beautiful, I would say. I certainly think the Terminal and Catch Me If You Can are the two underrated or the most underrated um, Spielberg movies. And, and I think the two most underrated John Williams scores as well. Maybe not most underrated, but they're certainly, they certainly don't get the love they deserve. Yeah, in the Terminal, you can definitely see John Williams' jazz side come out, which I, I can't remember had ever come out in any piece of music he had written up until that point. I was also listening to the soundtrack of the Terminal lately, and I think one of the tracks is called like Dinner with Amelia or something like that, which I, a, I highly recommend everyone watch, watch the movie. It's, it's one of my favorite kind of like feel-good films. I, I don't say that like in a bad way. I say that in a great way. And it has a quality that I love. I absolutely love in film of, of being play-like in that it's in, a, it's, in a close, it's in a space that's so closed that it could conceivably be a set. It could be like a, a stage, a set on a stage. Yeah. And uh, yeah. and when you when you <laughs> when you add the con- when you add the constraint of a, a stage like scenario, but you um, but you have all the freedom that film and um, editing provides, uh, I think the results are just wonderful. Most of the movie takes place in a JFK airport terminal. So, <laughs> oh, is it really JFK? Um, I didn't know that. Well, it's in New York, so it's either. I doubt they would have it set in Newark or LaGuardia. The songs. <laughs> It's not quite a cinematic. <laughs> Dude, that would be so funny. Um, but yeah, no, uh, that's a great film. And also um, with film scores too, like a lot of us... So I, I was talking about that um, uh, that track from the soundtrack called Dinner with Amelia. You know, we think they characterize composers uh, by the way they write the big stuff, right? The big, the grand melodies, the great, you know, symphonic parts of of scores the part all all the themes that we all know and and love but in a way you you almost learn more about a composer by how they do the small stuff Mm -hmm. right and so and so the scene in the in the movie is to the leads or to the characters sitting down and having dinner and john williams writes an eight minute long score clip for that scene when you're watching that movie you don't really even notice it or think about it and that's sort of not the point uh, I wouldn't have noticed it unless I was just listening to the soundtrack on the side for fun. But I was like, wow, this is a really, really <laughs> awesome eight-minute piece of music that I honestly didn't notice the first time through. That's, that's really well put. Um, I, I, I'm certainly like 100% in agreement that it's the, the soul of a composer is in really like the, the trivial curiosities that they have written. Um, right, you know, right. Like you learn a lot more about Bach from studying his sort of Fugettas and the you know the the contrapuntist fugues or something mm-hmm. like that rather than mm-hmm. the Matthew Passion, which is a wonderful work. It's one it's one of my favorite pieces of music. But um, yeah, I, I think it, it's always really interesting to to sort of look at the curiosities and the, the the sort of like trinket compositions. And also, I loved a lot of um I, I love a lot of the John Barry scores. So of course he did you know probably most famously James Bond music in the score for the first however many James Bonds he did quite a few of them but uh his score from out of Africa I always liked a lot the James Bond score is why you started playing trumpet right or one of the reasons 
weren't you? Yeah. One of the reasons, yeah. yeah. It was James Bond and Indiana Jones. So, you know. The... Yeah. <laughs> Another score uh, that I've always loved a lot um, is uh, Bernard Herrmann's music to Psycho. And not just the shower scene, which everyone knows, you know, it's <laughs> one of the most famous scenes in, in film history. Uh, fun fact, too, um, that was quite a point of contention between between uh, Hitchcock and Bernard Herrmann was the music for the shower sequence, because Hitchcock really didn't want to have any music at all. Oh, really? Well, that would have been a huge mistake. Hitchcock's The Burge. There's no music in that entire film, right? And so um, so I, I, I do see where Hitchcock was coming from. He thought it would be scarier with, without music. Bernard Herrmann thought otherwise, obviously. And But also, uh, so the score to Psycho, though, not just the shower scene, but throughout the whole movie, there's some really beautiful and serene music. And um, uh, the overture in the title sequence, too, I think it's, uh, was it for like string septet, maybe? I, or, I, I forget the right. orchestration. It's a string. It's not a string quartet. It's a bit bigger, but it's for a string chamber group, and that's one of my favorite like film overtures uh, of all time as well. And um, he can he can really put you on edge. Uh, he can really put you on edge. Um, just you know, with his music, if what's on the screen is just uh, driving down the road, you know, that that one particular theme that he has. Um, um, yeah, where where you, you you can tell immediately that she's not just driving down the road. Something something horrible is about to happen, or or at least the director wants me to get tense in the anticipation that something horrible is going to happen. Right, right. No, exactly, exactly. You know. And and I interestingly also... enough, like it's it's been funny watching in in uh, in Curb Your Enthusiasm when Larry David uses that. Um, I don't know if you've noticed, but he uses that that same music that uh, that that's in Psycho for for when. Um, She's just sort of driving, and and there's this uh, tense sort of anxious music happening underneath. Larry David uses the same the yeah. same music um, when he is trying to beat someone to the coffee shop, or when he's trying to arrive earlier than Richard <laughs> Lewis for dinner, <laughs> for completely completely inane purposes. But it's uh, it's a testament to the power of the music. One of the greatest shows of all time. Yeah. Let's talk about the documentary score. Sure. Yeah, so... Um, Do you want to give a little intro? So, Sure, yeah. So I stumbled across this documentary a year ago or so. And um, yeah, it's a documentary on basically the history, current practice, and art that is the film score. It really does a great job kind of um, hitting on some, some of the points we, we've already talked about here, actually, and then some... some some entirely different points, and it's a really great document, really great documentary in the sense that there are a lot of interviews with big name film film composers of today. Um, like there's interviews with Danny Elfman and Hans Zimmer, and it's really just kind of fascinating documentary that I I, I learned a ton, you know, watching. Um, one of the things too I like about it is they really go out of their way to interview a lot of composers you maybe haven't heard. They interview the guy that did the music for like the Smurfs movies and Despicable Me. Uh, yeah, I mean, not not the greatest film scores of all time by any mean, but heck, there was a film score written for that movie, one that took a lot of effort, time, and money, and of course played a role in that film and will forever be part of that film. So it's kind of interesting hearing uh, hearing those interviews as well as you know talking about how Hans Zimmer wrote the score for Batman. <laughs> yeah, I think my, my my in general my favorite part about that movie was. Just all the examples of interesting innovations that film composers were doing. 
um, or, or rather all the examples of, of interesting innovations that film composers had, had done or are doing. Um, like mm. the one that was just right at the beginning, right off the bat, completely blew me away was, was that, um, I, his, his name was, I think, uh, Mario Beltrami. I forget what the, what the movie was that he was doing this for, but, um, he created some sort of like Aeolian wind harp type situation oh, with, right. the, yeah, with like, yeah. The, yeah, it was like, um, I wrote down the, the mechanics of it here, but, um, he has like a piano with um, wires connecting from the piano to to like a water tank, um, and so it picks up um, like the the resonance of the wind, like like an alien harp, um, but mm -hmm. it's like connected to a piano, and um, and also there's there's the fact that the sound travels like faster through the wire than it does through the air, so it creates like a like a quote unquote reverse echo. Um, you know this this is amazing like this this is so this is so innovative and it, it, you know it, it's the kind of thing that makes me wonder like is film the most innovative thing happening in classical music right now very possibly um interesting interesting cuz that's a sound that's completely unique and and you know it stands on its own but it's also serving a purpose in film um and mm -hmm. i i wish i wish there were more people that were thinking thinking in these sort of you know crazy, crazy terms, just, you know, no, nothing but, uh, how, how, how can we get the kind of sound that, that I have in, in my head here? As far as like art forms that are currently innovating day, day by day, it's like film and by extension film music, right? Uh, is front and center. Um, like they have, they have some interviews with Reznor and Ross, the two, two guys that, that, oh yeah, speaking of director-composer collaborations. They've done a lot of the music for David Fincher's films. Um, uh, one of the more famous ones being The Social Network. And that's a freaking awesome film score. Mm -hmm. But it's it's also so different than any film score you've probably heard of, especially for such a blockbuster giant film that was, right? Yeah. The score was mostly made with a synthesizer and a sound booth with electronics. And it's incredible. Yeah. Speaking of musical innovations that happened, the innovation happened in the film score medium. I mean, again, talking about Bernard Herrmann and his use of the theremin, right? Um, Interesting. Yeah. For those who don't know, the theremin is a, a kind of electronic instrument. You play with, it's kind of it's so hard to explain if you don't have one in front of you, but you play by moving your hands around, I guess, the magnetic field. Uh, that's being created by these prongs and the way you move your hands adjusts the pitch and the volume and Bernard Herrmann used this in uh, his score for the day the earth stood still and it, it has since become the standard sound effect for like b-movie ufos so if i could try to imitate it it's kind of like the <laughs> Yeah, that's actually something I want to I wanted to sort of um, ask you about earlier. Is just the power of music to, the power of music to, um, like lock in a sound for an entire genre. For forever, mm. basically, like it's impossible to think of spy movies without big bands now, because yeah, of John like Barry brass and, and yeah, jazz and yeah, and it's impossible to think of aliens without theremins, and it's impossible to think of westerns without whatever the hell that thing is in Clint Eastwood movies. Um, 
Oh, you, you're you're talking about um, Enno Morricone's score for Good, the Bad, the Ugly? Exactly, yeah, yeah. With, like, the tumbleweed going yeah. across the scene, the... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, man, Chris is a man of many talents. <laughs> Plug to Enno Morricone, um, yeah, who wrote some of the greatest film music of all time. You know, a lot of the spaghetti westerns, right? Um, do you know why they're called spaghetti westerns? <laughs> I don't. Yeah, I... Um, I actually didn't know this for the longest time, <laughs> but apparently, um, so it was Western movies, like a lot of the Clint Eastwood, Good, the Bad, the Ugly, you know, style films. Yeah, um, they're Westerns that took place in the American Southwest, but for cheaper production costs, they filmed them in Sicily. Oh, wow. Interesting. That, that's great. I have a running joke that, that every time I talk to Chris, by the way, um, I, I come away with at least one interesting trivia fact. So yeah, we'll, we'll count that as today's. I'm forever humbled. And <laughs> Morricone was an Italian that wrote all these iconic Western film scores. So they're spaghetti Westerns in more ways than one. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so he also wrote, you know, score for Cinema Paradiso, one of my all-time favorite movies. Indeed. Um, uh, and, but he finally got an Oscar for his score to um, The Hateful, Hateful Eight. Hateful Eight, okay. Hateful Eight, yeah. He finally... Won the Oscar for best score for the Hateful Eight. So, all these iconic films he wrote in. But heck, I mean, Hitchcock didn't didn't ever um, win an Oscar. So that's crazy. He didn't himself win an Oscar. He's only had one film that that won the Oscar for for best picture. What was that? Rebecca. Oh. <laughs> yeah. Nice. Yeah. Well, that's well deserved. <laughs> of course, you know you can't think. You know, music people are like kind of you know, very, ju- not judgmental, but very passive about is like, you know, a lot of modern works of ligety in these composers where it's like a bow on like a steel rod making a screeching noise. But what would a horror movie be without those kind of non-traditional music sounds? Yeah, yeah. I mean, that that, that goes to one of my favorite sort of I guess historical, but it's it's one of my favorite sort of cultural coincidences where Hollywood horror movies have a love affair with the sort of Eastern European avant-garde composers. And that's something that I wouldn't have thought would ever happen. But, you know, here we are where um, horror movies don't, like the horror movie soundtracks are so influenced by and sometimes even used. Like I think um, in Shutter Island, they use the the piece Lontano by, by Ligeti. Um, gotcha, gotcha. And in general, like um, the scores of Ligeti are used uh, in so many horror movies. And um, whenever you want to evoke the feeling of horror, um, his music is used a lot in Eyes Wide Shut. It's not a horror movie, but um, um, in a recent Black Mirror episode, um, Metalhead, the score was entirely by the composer Penderecki, who I think recently died, RIP. Um, he did, yeah. But, yeah. Earlier um, this month, I think. Yeah, I just—it's just one of those one of those um, neat little coincidences that I, it's just so charming. Um, yes, but anyway, so we were talking about the documentary yeah, score. Yeah, yeah, we got sidetracked. Um, not to be confused, not to be confused. Uh, if you search for it, um, uh, there's also a movie called The Score, which I think is a Liam Neeson action movie or something like that. And so very different. I saw that because. I was watching this off of Chris's recommendation, so I just assumed it was called The Score. So I went into Amazon and typed in The Score, and I saw this movie for some Liam Neeson action sort of Taken-esque movie. 
And I was just sitting there like, what the f- does Chris want me to watch here? And how and how, how does this have anything to do with film music? But I mean, as we're recording this right now in April 2020, it is currently streaming on Amazon Prime. So uh, highly recommend people check it out. Uh, um, yeah, there are a lot of... Um, a lot of little trivia-esque things I learned in the documentary too that I think are hilarious and funny I didn't know. Like, I had no idea John Williams played piano on the score for West Side Story. <laughs> yeah, that was the start, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. That's crazy. Yeah, yeah. Um, I, I knew he was a pianist. I think he studied piano at Juilliard and, and things. So I, I knew that, but I didn't know he was, his piano playing was recorded. Yeah, so. that's hilarious. Um... um. There's somewhere in there where they talk about how um, in in the early days, mu- music was something just to cover up the noise of the projector. Ah, yeah, that was that's very right. interesting. And and that, that ties into what we were saying before. It's just an extension of sort of opera and ballet because, uh, of course, uh, uh, you know, one of the purposes, one of the main purposes of ballet music is to cover up the sound of the dancer's feet. Hmm. Hmm. Right, right. When film music was new, yeah, it was kind of, initially created just to solve a problem yeah <laughs> and it's kind of hilarious that i mean quite humble beginnings for for a whole whole, whole new art form yeah so they, they in general they they had this they had this attitude all these film composers had this attitude of um every instrument every sound is valid as long as it sort of advances the film um and it's it seems to be it seems to be like one of those uh completely wonderful historical ironies that um this actually sort of really it's a john cajian attitude um the sort of the sort of thing that like all sound is music or all sound can be music um this is something that that um John Cage really brought to the fore and then sort of got ridiculed for. Um, and then that attitude sort of left the, the quote-unquote proper classical music um, arena. And it's, it seems to have been transplanted into, into film scores where you're getting, mm-hmm. you're getting all of these sort of, like I was saying before, completely innovative experiments in how to make different sounds. You get these movies where there is no music, that also that seems to be something in the sort of Cajun tradition of, of yeah, right. sort of look at the music that's all around you, and I, I find it I find it a, a sort of irony that that this thing has been has been abandoned by you know quote unquote proper classical musicians and now has a home in the completely vulgar art form of of cinema. Yeah, right, right. Um, and I, I love it. I love it. I, I I thought the part where they were talking about Herman was really interesting. But yeah, they they were talking about Psycho and um, and how it's 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 music that that um, it's not music that describes or accompanies the action, um, but it, it's music that's actually involved in the sleight of hand that 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 film is that really all art is, um, because if if you if you if you watch it without any music, um, it's not actually that scary, and if you watch it with music. Um, it, it really, the music tricks you into thinking that the scene is more violent than it actually is. The, the scene really is mm-hmm. not that violent if you take the music away. But you add the music and um, it's a lot more scary. You, your body thinks that a lot more violence is happening than actually is. And that's exactly the kind of interesting, uh, 
um, that's exactly the kind of interesting um, like link that I think movies and music should have, where it's not just that the movie is happening and the music is just sort of describing the thing, but actually they're, they're, they're interlinked in the process of sort of tricking your brain into thinking that something is happening that isn't happening, which is the whole point of art and specifically film. So I, I love right. it when they were talking about that. And, and um, I really think that that kind of film score is, is a kind of um, beautiful ideal for, for what film scores can be. Yeah, absolutely. And yeah, if I recall in that shower scene in Psycho, the famous scene, um, yeah, you don't ever actually see the knife like stab her. Yeah, exactly. Right? You don't ever see like a cut or a shot of that. Um, yeah, and so it, it's funny. Like without music, it's actually like that seems pretty comical to watch. Yeah, and not just in <laughs> uh, the actual process of watching it, but in your memory. Like the the music mm-hmm. has a power to to stick things in your memory in a very. Um, it, it can it can really like stick things in the in the sort of limbic parts of your brain in the in your reptile brain, and so I think there there are all these like we're all walking around with the sort of visceral reaction that we have to the psycho shower scene. And that would never exist without the score. Even if, even if the scene were more violent in the, the image, the imagery of it, um, the fact that we're all walking around sort of low key, or maybe it's just me low key terrified of someone stabbing you in the shower. I think that's a, that's a, that's a Herman creation, not a Hitchcock creation.